Hello, and welcome to The Content Minds. My name is Ryan Broderick, and with me is my co-host, Luke Bailey. And this week, we are living out a dream that Luke has had since the very beginning of this show. Luke, can you explain what that is? I think it's extremely unfair to call this just my dream, because we have talked about this as a, as a duo, as a thing that we would eventually do. But we have finally reached the inevitable point of this podcast, where we are finally recording a podcast in a pub. That's right. We're in a pub. We are a couple days out from our live event, Bad Posters Club in London. Uh, there's a lot happening with our own show and with the internet at large. So we're going to do a quick one this week. And we expect Alan to inject lots of snark uh, into this without us, hopefully, to keep that going. Whatever Alan says about the quality of the audio, that's on him. That's not us. We're doing a great job recording this with one microphone off of Luke's phone. So... Yeah, it's really, really, I, I don't think you can ask for a better, a, better, a better way to record. Although I'm going to try my hardest not to max out the microphone, but if Luke makes me angry, I can't really promise that it's not going to happen. Okay, so now I think because we're on my my home territory this week, uh, the question for you is, how's the internet been this week? What's that made-up word you use all the time? Febrile? Febrile. It's a very febrile week. (sighs) The internet this week is probably the worst it's been since Donald Trump became president. I think that's exactly right. I I tweeted this earlier this week, but... Actually, no, that's not true. I put it on Mastodon. <laughs> um, Do you have a Mastodon? Yeah, I started a Mastodon. I want to see what it was all about. My <sighs> conclusion is it's not great. <laughs> By the way, the thing that I tweeted was, this is uh, the closest it felt to being in the UK when Donald Trump was president, and you're waiting for him to wake up to tweet. Yeah, so if people don't know what we're talking about with that, Donald Trump is a, is a, is a poop tweeter. He's a, he's a toilet tweeter. And I used to have push alerts for his tweets. And uh, in UK time, it would be, I don't know, like around 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning, he would start tweeting, which would be around like six in the morning. So it's very clear that he, you know, had his morning movement and decided that he wanted to then uh, poop all over Twitter next. And that's kind of what it's been like, actually. So yeah, because I've spent the last two weeks in this time zone uh, and I had a whole bunch of stuff I was going to do with the web summit. And I had to throw it all out because the only thing anyone in the entire world cares about right now, unfortunately, I think, is Elon Musk. Yeah, about midday, 1 p.m. most days, suddenly he gets up and tweets something and you're like, all right, that's my whole day. And this is the thing, like, I, this is why I hated doing this job uh, during the Trump administration, which is that, like, when a horrible man gets that level of attention and is able to point all of the various apparati, apparatuses of the intention economy at themselves, even if you try to counter-program it, you're still doing it to deal with the fact that they're – like, even if I don't write about Elon Musk, 
where I don't talk about Elon Musk, it's because I'm not writing about Elon Musk. I'm not talking about him. You're doing everything in like positive or negative. Yeah. There's no version of anything that isn't either in lieu with what he's doing or reacting to what he's doing. And that is driving me insane. And I hate it. Here's what I think we should do. Last week, you dropped a bombshell on me, which is that you are in favor of paying $8 a month to Elon Musk to use Twitter. I did not have the time or the mental capacity to process that. And I think that this week, in our limited space, we should very clearly outline why you think that, and then I can explain why you're wrong. Hey, everyone. Producer Alan jumping in here back in Brooklyn. And before we get to this epic showdown on whether paid verification is good for Twitter and the internet, I wanted to say that I had never heard this Trump poop tweet theory before, so I felt like I had to do a quick fact check. And while I did not find definitive evidence one way or the other, based on my one Google search, I did find a thread on Quora, of all places, with the title, Does President Trump Tweet While He Is On The Toilet? And it has several dozen responses. So those are fun, and we'll link to it in the show notes. Anyway, on to the verification debate. Okay, All right. I've had a big sip of my beer now, so I'm now going to explain why I think paid verification is a good idea. Okay, let's go. Okay, so there is a bunch of things wrong with Twitter already, right? I think we can agree on this. <laughs> uh, I think that paid verification, and I, I want to be clear, I don't think necessarily that $8 a month is the right way. I personally would have a one-off fee, and I personally would have it be probably a little bit less, but you want a fee there. If you have a fee there... I think it's useful to have verification, but I think it's useful to have verification for a lot of people, not a few people. So for example, academics, scientists, there's no real reason why they shouldn't be easily verified and journalists should. Like, I don't think there's a material difference between those categories. And then it kind of, you know, rolls down. Like, you know, I would like an expert on plumbing to be online occasionally. I would like an expert on how roads work to be online occasionally. Like, there, are lots of, there are lots of different things that you could have and say, okay, is relevant for these people to be verified. So... Let's assume that we can get, let's say, 60% of Twitter's user base. I think 50, 60% is kind of the magic number who are uh, going, they're going to be verified. Uh, they're going to be promoting the algorithm. So you mainly see their stuff. Like maybe even you have a thing where you can just turn off everyone else, which, you know, gets rid of abuse pretty quickly, gets rid of trolling pretty quickly, gets rid of spam pretty quickly. And also gets rid of just like kind of annoying replies that you don't, you don't necessarily want to reply to or acknowledge because they don't like, you know, just people like repeating your point back to you. Whereas like, it's just kind of an annoying platform for that. Like there is too much happening and it, it can be annoying. So you verify a bunch of people. You have a better discourse because only certain people are talking. Because you also, and this is the really important bit, you have a, a secondary moderation. What you're able to do is you just de-verify someone. So like, okay, fine. You, you want to you wanna abuse people. You're being de-verified. You'll have, still have your followers. You'll have your, your free speech. But you will be de-verified and you will no longer be prominent in the discourse. So it's that kind of like, you can still ban people obviously for other things and should probably still happen, but you can reserve that for kind of illegal target harassment or the initial stuff. You can just say, hey, if you're not, you're not contributory to the discourse, then you should be removed from it. And that's effectively what it's doing. It's creating a two-tiered town square. If you want to get down in the dirt and 
fuck around and shit post and stuff, you still can. That's fine. You just won't be verified and you won't necessarily have as many people seeing your stuff. Which also, if you're a shit poster, it's probably better. Like you don't necessarily want to get caught up in some like journalist condemning you for a dumb meme that you threw off and you having like your life ruined for three days by a tabloid that it just gets mad at you for no reason. So so I think there's like there are real benefits to having a two-tiered system. I think there are also problems with this, particularly under the Elon Musk leadership, in that I don't trust him to effectively moderate it. And I don't like the idea that it's there's this kind of a you know, a difference between like legal speech, all allowed, uh, and legal, mm, we don't really like this sort of speech and we're going to de-verify you for X reason because we can't take a joke because we don't like parody or whatever it is, that, that, whatever that case is. But that's also always going to be the case with a company that they, a corporate company, they have power. So yeah, okay, I don't like the idea that they have control over it. At the same time, they kind of always have. Hey, Alan again. And at this point in putting the show together, I actually had to stop to consider the scene of these two bearded men sitting in a corner of a dark, empty pub in the middle of the day debating social media policy. And I had to wonder just how many times the bar staff must have overheard their conversation and thought these guys have to be the biggest wankers we have ever come across. Nevertheless, Luke made some good points. So let's see how Ryan rebuts. Okay, let's start here. All right, so if you think about the history of user-generated content platforms, you have the early days of Facebook and YouTube where everyone's just connecting with people and they're making stuff and they're sharing stuff and they're talking. On Facebook, it's like you and everyone you go to school with, you all become friends. On YouTube, it's like the video of the elephant pooping, the, the Green Brothers. It's like people vlogging. All of a sudden... People are finding stuff, they're sharing stuff, and it's chaos. And if you remember, like 10 years ago, it was complete chaos. And both of those platforms said, okay, like we've got to figure out a way to elevate good stuff. So Facebook and YouTube both did partnerships with mainstream news outlets. They started elevating trusted creators. They didn't make them pay for verification, but there was essentially this like the, the partner program started to roll out, the Facebook pages started to get verified. There was all kinds of security features being added in. And a funny thing started to happen with both of the platforms. Around 2014, 2015, you started seeing a whole lot of people complaining about how boring they were. Or on the flip side, how much of a mess they had become underneath that like layer of quote-unquote well-moderated content. Historically, no platform has tried the dirty dancing setup that you're describing, which is the like country club on top and the dancing teenagers in the basement. I prefer to think of it like the mullet of the internet. Same idea. Now, every time that system has happened, what ends up happening is the unmoderated space turns into a rat's nest of violent conspiracy theories and all kinds of other pseudoscience nonsense. And the top becomes really boring. That, that just happens. Because it turns out that as much as rich people go completely insane when any person from a vulnerable or marginalized community tells them how they feel about something, they also like the chaos. We all like the chaos of user-generated content. Now, okay, compare that to spaces like Tumblr and Reddit and Pinterest, which over the years have actually gotten rid of most of their verified users. There's a couple celebrities left on Tumblr. Neil Gaiman, Taylor Swift. Ryan Reynolds. Soon to be possibly Ryan Reynolds. And on Reddit, you have like the, you have Arnold Schwarzenegger 
you have like, there's a couple high profile redditors, but there's not a lot of them on Pinterest. I have no idea. I don't think there's that many public accounts that are like genuine celebrities that you can track on those platforms. They've had to institute interesting user incentives and interesting features to moderate that content because there's no way to really verify who you are on them. And actually, if I had the choice between paying to get something like 2015 YouTube versus getting a free Reddit, I would choose the free Reddit. I would choose the more egalitarian space. The other thing is that like, and this is obviously not the easiest thing for two white guys to talk about in a pub, but the largest contributor for online culture is black Twitter, the, the black diaspora across Twitter. The largest, most interesting communities on Twitter aren't journalists, aren't academics, aren't politicians. They're people of color. They're people outside of America. There are people who are using 2G. There are people who are communicating on messaging apps and using Twitter as a way to coordinate. There are places like Mexico, like Brazil, like India, like the Middle East. I mean, golf Twitter. Oh my God. Golf Twitter is out of control. It's amazing. These places are going to get throttled so badly and they're already being treated terribly. And I think that they are going to become nothing more than an afterthought. And the idea to get very serious, thinking about Musk Twitter handling the next mass shooting in America is making my skin crawl. The idea of watching half a company have to respond to the accurate communication of information during a natural disaster or a mass uh, casualty incident or some kind of large populist uprising, the things that make Twitter Twitter, the things that we've talked about in the show, Arab Spring, London riots, Occupy Wall Street, Hurricane Sandy, those moments created the Twitter that we know. And if you put a two-tiered system in there run by half the team that used to be running the website, I, I, I can't even fathom how like, how badly this could go. And and I and and do I think that parts of it will get better or parts of it will become more interesting when you pay eight dollars a month? Sure. Am I going to do it? Yes, because unfortunately, like I make money on the internet, and right now, Twitter went from my second biggest traffic source to my third this year. If it goes any further, would I pay for Twitter? I don't think so. But right now, garbage day readership kind of depends on it. But there's there's so much beyond just the immediate experience of Twitter that if you think about it for like even two seconds and you think about Elon Musk being the man in charge of that stuff, if you think about Elon Musk being the man responsible for whether or not you find out if your child's school has been shot up, like that is just like making my brain hurt. And the idea that you'd have to pay $8 a month to get better access to that kind of information, like hurts my soul. And like hurts what I believe in the internet. And like, I think he's a clown and I think he's like a, a Spencer's gifts that's come to life. He's like the pickle Rick of billionaires. Like I fucking hate him. And like the idea of like him wanting to charge people for that just sucks. I think. I mean, I don't, I don't, the thing is, I don't disagree with a huge amount of that um, because I do think that the version of a paid verification that could work is not a version run by Elon Musk. And I, I want to make that clear. I don't think his version will work, but I think there's a principle in there that could. Right. But I will also say, like, to kind of go reverse through your argument there, I don't think people were getting accurate information off Twitter during a mass shooting. And I think that has consistently been a problem. So I, I think that there is a, you know, it makes me seem cool that he was involved. I don't know that it was just better that it was a, a different group of people. And, the half company thing is, is like very relevant here. It's very clear that Twitter is not going to be able to handle an awful lot of this stuff. 
But to go back further, yeah, the idea of a, the two-tier internet, the way I would execute it and the way theoretically you can execute it is you can choose to see, okay, I just want to see the verified people or you can choose to see, I just want to see everyone. Or hey, maybe you can just say, I want to choose the non-verified people. And so you can have a way that works that you can see it all or you can see part of it. And to go a bit further in your argument, you, you make a very valid point that, you know, a huge amount of uh, the most interesting content online is created by Black Twitter, other black communities. I also think back to the, the Euro 2020 final, <laughs> which happened last year. And it was quite an unpleasant moment because basically th- there's no reason why you'd remember it, but England lost on penalties. I would never forget the Euro 2020 final, whatever that is or means. Sure. So England lost on penalties. Uh, five players took penalties. Three of them missed, missed them. The three that missed them happened to be black. That was not a good moment on Twitter. Oh, yeah, I do remember this for all of the wrong reasons. This was bad. This was bad, yeah. Okay. So if you then have a filter that is essentially saying, okay, you only have to see the verified bit, those players can be on Twitter without getting abused. But do you think that they should have to pay $8 a month to not get abused? No, I don't. And I think that the better solution to this would be moderation. But I also think that there is a way to create a admittedly paid safe space the tricky thing is is like do you have a right to twitter well no i don't think you do do you have a right not to be abused yes you do and and so i think that it's, it's very tricky to figure out a way that that works and i agree with you like ultimately the internet is interesting for one central reason which is that unlike tv or the radio no one's in charge of it so we love the idea of mixing the serious with the not serious, the funny with the not funny, the random nonsense with stuff that matters. That, that is inherently not only interesting, but like addicting. I want to see really serious analysis of geopolitics sandwiched in between a guy collecting his cum in a jar. Sure, that's the dream. That is all I want. You know, like I want to see like, is posting feet ableist? sandwiched in between an update from the Chilean election. That's good stuff. The thing is that the problem that has always been part of Twitter is that instead of investing any time or energy into thinking about guardrails, and and I talk about this all the time in Garbage Day, and what's funny is that like every other website has, every single other website on the internet has thought about this, whether you're talking about how reblogs function or you're talking about subreddits and how they intersect, or you're talking about like an algorithm or recommendations or an AI feed like TikTok. Every other site is investing at least time and energy into some kind of community guardrail. Whereas Twitter, I mean, the thing that I always come back to is all you need to know about Twitter is priorities. They allow you to limit replies to your tweet, and then they add quote tweets. It's just it's just mind-blowing to me how little that platform, before Elon Musk, seems to have cared about the experience of a random person and who has access to them and like the context that's included in a tweet. And part of me, like obviously, you and I have both been through layoffs. We've seen all kinds of people lose their jobs in the tech and media world. I sympathize, but I'm also like... You created this beast. You created this beast, and this beast ran rampant across both of our countries. Facebook got a real bad rap during Trump and Brexit. But if you think about Twitter's impact on the way the media perceives itself and the way politicians operate, for a site that has like less than 30% of Americans on it, it controls so much. 
And the fact that like it was just sitting there like a like a golden goose egg for some billionaire to take is their fault. And and to have Jack Dorsey be like, we can decentralize it with Project Blue Sky, blah, blah, blah. It's like, bro, you can you consolidated the world's culture into one website, didn't think about what that would mean or do, and then like just I, it's it's mind-boggling to me. Jack Dorsey's the most interesting person in this entire thing. I, I want to know what he's up to. I want to know what his deal is. I want to know what he thinks. And everything that he does is kind of like... Because I do think now, if he started Twitter, he would do it incredibly differently. I think so, too. I, I mean, I think we can both agree that Jack Dorsey is not very cool, but definitely cooler than Elon Musk and cool enough to look at Elon Musk and be like, you're not cool. Yeah, no, that's absolutely, absolutely what's happening. But he's also like, you actually have the money and the influence to enact the things that I want enacted, and I just have to slowly direct you there. I don't know if this is going to translate for you culturally, but there was a moment in middle school when there was a kid in my class who figured out how to do a really good impression of Timmy from South Park, the character that's mentally handicapped that says his own name. Sure. And this kid in my class became very popular because he could do like a really good Timmy from South Park impression. And that's all he could do. But he became like known as like the funniest guy. That's Elon Musk. Yeah, that's exactly right. On like a global scale. Elon Musk is like the kid in your middle school who who like saw the Adam Sandler movie first and can do the lines. That's what I'm watching Elon Musk do like on a global scale. And it's like, it's it, it hurts me. And like, and also like we haven't even talked about his like weird war room of like creepy PayPal guys and like and like crypto VCs who like clearly feel like they failed with Clubhouse and are now just trying to make Clubhouse again. Yeah, I think I think the Jack on the Jack Dorsey side, he's definitely underestimated his ability to control these people. Um yeah. I yeah, I think I think I think my conclusion to this would be that I do not think that Musk's overall project will work, but I do think that the theory behind paid verification and giving someone an extra moderation tool to enable people to see better or worse content depending on their like like for it and i know this also because like you know we have we have reporters everyone knows reporters everyone knows in this industry who have like had extremely bad times based on just like a, a torrent of anonymous accounts which if you can kind of move them out and give them you a really good tool to say hey i would not pay eight dollars to be verified i would pay eight dollars for a more enjoyable twitter i think we will look back on this very similarly to MySpace in a certain way. Uh, so this would be my conclusion. So MySpace, it like it f- it facilitates a really core need by the end of the 2000s, which is that it's connecting people who would not necessarily be connected IRL. Facebook figures out a way to subvert that by saying, if you're in college, you can use this instead. Then by the time I've graduated college, I'm using Facebook to connect with people that I've met wherever I've ended up after college. Then Facebook spreads beyond that. And for a brief while, Facebook up until like 2015 is really facilitating like a very specific need, which is that this, that we had this urge to be connected to a a thousand strangers. We're now sort of losing that because we've seen what that can mean. So what I'm trying to imagine right now is what is the need that we're trying to accomplish with Twitter that is not being accomplished that something else could come and replace? And what could it be? Because it doesn't have to be new. Facebook wasn't brand new when it took over MySpace. It was just around. So like, if I had to put money 
obviously TikTok is around and it's popular, but it's not text-based. Clearly, there has to be a place where we can go and read words in small bites and connect with like media and culture at once. And it can't really be Reddit because Reddit has such a horrible community. And it can't really be t- Tumblr because Tumblr has the Tumblr community. It's an esoteric community. Yeah, they're like a bunch of little weird little freaks. Like they're a bunch of weird little freaks. I have really enjoyed them this week, uh, refusing to or, 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 or making Tumblr sound just awful to everyone who's arrived. Yeah, so I've seen the other side of it on Tumblr, and they're very excited about how cringe they appear on Twitter. I don't know if it's on purpose. I don't think they can really claim that it's like a master plan, but they believe it is, and that's all that matters. I think I think what you were talking about, though, is I think that in theory, the different Twitter elements can be served by different things. I think your broadcast mode will probably become TikTok, and I think your communication mode will probably become some combination of Discord and uh, Mastodon, WhatsApp chat, which I think kind of has already happened already because an awful lot of people are not having conversation with their friends in public anymore. That's kind of what I was leaning to, which is I think, and it's not just because this is Garbage Day's business model, which has suited me very well over the last couple of years. I think between Substack and Substack competitors, Discord and Discord competitors, and broadcast tools like TikTok, YouTube, Twitch, there seems to be more of an urge from uh, particularly younger users to spread out their internet diet. I think going forward, there's a very good chance that Twitter, we look back at it as like, wasn't it weird that all of those things were happening on the same website? In the same way that I look back on MySpace and I'm like, isn't it weird that MySpace was essentially just like a bunch of inboxes you had to look at? It was like, here's your friend requests. Here's your comments. Here's your picture comments and you're just clearing inboxes like if you go I, I i spent i spent some time doing this the other day i went back and looked at the myspace cms and it's so bizarre now to think that like on the internet the coolest thing was just inboxes for children yeah it was essentially a very complicated email server it was a very bad email server for non-emails and it would just create more and more email servers inside of it by the end of it there was like nine different inboxes that you had to look at And what no one talks about is that as MySpace was happening, MSN for you and AOL Instant Messenger for me were actually probably the dominant social network. And so I think there's a very good chance that this kills Twitter or at least turns it into something so different that it's no longer like right to call it Twitter. My fear, though, is that it works and it creates a new paradigm on the internet where people feel comfortable subscribing for access to have the illusion of communicating online. And that's like a whole different world that freaks me out. Did you know the Krasensteins are on Mastodon? You tweeted this at me. And my thought was that I would pay $8 a month to make it so that you could not tweet at me, but you could only see my tweets. Right. That's what this could be. That's what this could be. Okay, right. So we've, we've agreed on this. I have thought of one really good idea for Mastodon. And if I can get the time between now and when this episode comes out, I will push it out with the episode, which is I'm going to make, I'm going to try to find time to make a Mastodon instance that is just the Jeremy Renner app. Oh, so it's just for people on the Jeremy Renner app or it's just? It's a Mastodon instance for only talking about Jeremy Renner. Oh, that's good. Uh, I like that. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know if I've moved to it, but uh, I'd consider it.
Okay, so that was the great Twitter paid verification debate. Basically, they both kind of agreed by the end, and Ryan wants to make a Mastodon server just for talking about Jeremy Renner, which he has not done by the time this podcast publishes, but maybe he'll get around to it. Seems about right for this show. Luke and I have uh, reached the end of our pints, uh, which is, yeah, Luke just tried to record the empty glass. Thank you guys for dealing with two weeks of uh, inconsistent audio quality, and I hope that Alan has injected some fun stuff in between our ramblings. And most importantly, for those of you who came to see us this week in London, thank you very much. It is absolutely a dream come true to be on stage with you guys and hand out rotisserie chickens. You'll understand when you see photos and we will see you next week with a new bonus episode a new normal episode and uh maybe some kind of conclusion to whatever the hell's going on with twitter but god knows yeah because it'll be over by next week the website <laughs> yeah sure the website the drama uh, hold on yeah elon musk will be arrested by the sec can they arrest people they must right? I, I i this seems like a question for your country okay uh real quick did you consume any content to stay sane this week since the last time i saw you i spent two days in lisbon and one day working and one evening with you and then another day working so no i have not consumed any content I have one fun thing for this, which is my girlfriend has never been to the UK before, so I'm here with her right now, and she has never seen Gogglebox before, and she really enjoyed Gogglebox. She really enjoys British television in general, and we did eat KFC in bed watching Gogglebox as it rained outside, and it felt just fantastic. A famously British food, KFC. I think you guys do KFC better than we do. I'm sure we do. Thank you guys very much for listening. Thank you, Alan, for putting together the lovely soundscapes or not so lovely soundscapes that are currently hitting your ear holes. And we will see you next week. Thank you. Thank you.